All right, we're in Hebrews chapter 13 tonight, verses 1 through 8. Hebrews 13, verses 1 through 8. Now I'm going to read the whole section to you, and then we're going to break it down almost a verse at a time for tonight. The Hebrew writer goes on to say, Keep on loving each other as brothers. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Remember those in prison as if you were, your, you were their fellow prisoners, and those who are mistreated as if you're, you, you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, because God has said, Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, The Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life, and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I've got to be honest with you. As we start looking at the last chapter here in Hebrews, you, you probably notice that it seems like he's all of a sudden cramming a whole bunch of stuff in at the end of the letter. Did you kind of read it that way? I pictured him trying to get in the mail, and the mailman was on his street. You ever, you, ever, you ever been like that? Where you're like finishing writing and licking the stamps before the mailman showed up, and you're running out saying, hey, hey, hey. It's almost like he's writing in that fashion. He's just trying to cram some stuff in it. And all through the book of Hebrews, he's been not only teaching, but he's been developing his points. But here, he doesn't take the time to develop them. He just gives exhortations or instructions or challenges. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to break them down into each individual instruction. But interestingly enough, even though it looks like he's cramming, you're going to see that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there is actually a pattern. There's actually a theme. There's actually a reason why these are all here. It wasn't like, oh, I thought of this too, and oh, I thought of that too at the end. Actually, the Holy Spirit is guiding him in a direction to write to the people that he's writing to. So let's break the first one down. The first one actually says, keep on loving, I'm paraphrasing now each of these, keep on loving each other as brothers. He says there in chapter 13, uh, verse 1, keep on loving each other as brothers. Now let's just stop there. What we need to do in order to, to understand what he's talking about when he says love each other as brothers is to understand the context of who he's writing to. We could do a whole study on how the Bible says we're to love one another. But we have to understand who he's writing to and why he's writing this to help us really understand why he tells them to love each other as brothers. So go back with me to Hebrews chapter 10 and look at verses 32 through 34. He says to them, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering, Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. Keep in mind who he's writing to. He's writing to a group of Christians who because of their faith in Christ were being persecuted severely. They were losing their property. They were being kicked out of their homes. They were being put in prison. And because of this, some of them were thinking, well, maybe I'll just go back to being a Jew. And the Hebrew writer has been dealing with this whole book on the danger of that. But at the same time, as he's concluding his letter to them, he says to them, remember 
brotherly love. So and now what I want to do is I want to just take a little bit of time and teach to you about what the Scripture says about brotherly love, but only from one aspect of it that applies to their situation. So uh, put a bookmark here in Hebrews uh, 13 and go to John chapter uh, 13. John chapter 13, and then we're going to go to 1 John chapter 3. So John 13 to start. Look at verses 34 and 35. Jesus is teaching His disciples, and He says, A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus here says, I'm going to give you a new command. You need to love each other. But it's not like they hadn't heard love each other before. But the new command is to love each other in what way? As He loved them. And you're about to see there's a depth to this type of love that is different from just, quote-unquote, phileo, brotherly love. Go to 1 John chapter 3 now and look at verses 16 through 18. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 13, uh, sorry, 16 through 18, John says, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down His life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us love not with words or tongue, but with actions and truth. Do you understand what he's saying here now? In Hebrews 13 when he says, keep on loving each other as brothers. Remember, we just saw that they had stood side by side when they, some were put in prison and some lost their property. That means among them in the Christian fellowship there, there were those who had less than others, if you will, because of the persecution or whatever. As brothers, what were those who had possessions to be doing for those who had lost possessions? They should be sharing them. And he's saying, look, with all that's going on here, let me just kind of wrap up some final exhortations for you before I get this letter in the mail. Don't forget that to love each other as brother means more than patting each other on the back. That means if you've got something that they need, give it to them. Because Jesus laid down His life for us. And He says that we're to love each other as He's loved us. Did Jesus sacrifice so that we could experience blessings? Yes, He did. He sacrificed His life. And we need to be willing as Christian brothers to actually be willing to help meet each other's needs. We're going to take a look at that a little bit later on because you're going to see a theme here. And, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, where the Bible says they had everything in common. Now, you, I want you to just keep in mind, though, how are you going to ever know whether or not anybody else in this room has a need or a material need? You have to know each other. And you have to what? You're going to have to get, each, get together in each other's homes. Now, I'm not going to take the time tonight to preach principle number four from the principles of a God-centered church, but principle four is getting back to biblical fellowship. And in our churches today, we've turned fellowship into punching cookies once a month on a Sunday night in the fellowship hall. And nowadays, most of us in our churches really don't know each other on a biblical fellowship level at all. Nowadays, most of us know each other by our first or last names. We know where you park and we know which pew is yours. 
But we really don't know each other on a deep biblical level. And as Allison was saying, when we get to that section in Acts 2, 42-47 tonight, you'll see that they met regularly, daily, in each other's homes. They got to know each other. As some of you heard me teach on this before, you heard me say, when you get to biblical fellowship, you'll know whether or not we drink whole milk or 2%. Because you've been in our fridge. You'll know whether, I'll know whether or not you've got a cat and whether or not the litter box needs to be changed. I'll tell you now, we don't have a cat. Don't want a cat. I got stuck with a cat when I was pastor at First Baptist in the Atlantic because one Sunday morning when I got there early like I always did, there was a Budweiser box on the front step of the church. I thought to myself, probably should move that before service starts this morning. And so I picked it up and realized it was full of kittens. Someone had dropped a box of kittens off at the church. I then didn't know what to do with it, but stuck it in a closet in the kitchen. I just figured, you know, let's just put it in there for now. I'll deal with it after church. Went through the whole service. I went through the whole service, and afterwards, before they all left, I just made this announcement. Hey, by the way, somebody dropped a box of kittens off at the church here. If anybody's interested, come see me in the back. These two showed up. Please, Daddy. They're about this tall, back when you used to think they were cute. Oh, please, Daddy. I'm not a cat person, so you, can, you, you don't even have to come over to my house to find this out. We don't have a cat, but we did at one time. Um, we don't have that level of fellowship with each other, folks. And sad, nowadays, if we even sense that somebody has a need, who do we go tell? We go tell the pastor. Call the church. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. Actually, nowadays, we expect the church to pay the light bill of all these people that show up. Biblically, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God has designed the benevolence, if you will, the church to give together and to share for the meeting of the needs of the body of Christ. Yes, we see a picture of the Good Samaritan who took care of the physical needs of that person on the side of the road. But who met it? He did, as God brought him in that situation. And I believe that if you see someone in need, the Bible sometimes has you almost most of the time, have you happened to run across that so that you would meet that need? But we say, go to the church. Go to the church. And I'm just telling you. And I'm going to stop, otherwise I'll preach all of principle number four, and that's not what we're here for. Keep on loving each other as brothers. And folks, if Jesus does tarry, things are going to get worse. And by the way, if you aren't watching the news every night, you can't, are you telling me that the prophecies aren't being fulfilled? That everybody's ganging up on Israel? And anybody that even tries to side with Israel, and we're the only one left, and we're barely there for them, unfortunately. Be praying that our country votes no to the Palestinian attempt to become a state. Because the moment we say yes, it's over. The moment we say yes, it's over. We'll be the last country in the world who's been there on Israel's side, and everyone will be against Israel. And the Bible says one day that will happen. All nations of the earth will be against them. But I'll tell you this much. If Jesus tarries and things continue as they are, there are going to be people in this room, and there might even be some people in this room right now, and we don't know it, who have material need. You're going to have to get to know each other. Get to know each other. And then you can express biblical love, brotherly love, by being willing to sacrifice for your brother or sister who's in need. I think... They lost a lot. They depended on each other more. Yes, they did. I think before the church, before we as as church people or Christians start to uh, see the need.
Yeah, I, I honestly agree with you, Duke. Hey, you know what? You know what's awesome about this room full of people here right now? We all go to quote unquote different churches, but we're all a part of the church, are we not? And we don't have to be in a local fellowship in order to meet each other's needs, folks. This could be why God's got you here or somebody here. There might be some needs that He wants to meet through this group of people, whether you go to our church or not. Where are you a member? I don't care. This is what it means to be a part of the body of Christ. And I love the fact that I have to almost whip you guys to stop talking so we can start this study. And then when we're done, everybody hangs out and has a good time. I think it's awesome. I think it's great. Well, let's look at this next part then. Then Look at the next part of verse thir- uh, chapter 13. Look at verse 2. He says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some people have entertained angels without knowing it. Now, to set this up, you've got to keep in mind the context. Remember, as Duke was sharing, they had left Judaism. They had lost a lot of their support of their families. They had lost possessions, jobs, property. Some were in prison. And they were having to meet each other's material needs. And that meant actually having people live in their homes. But also there was a cultural thing that went on back at that time that a lot of us don't understand because we've got Super 8s on every corner. But back then they didn't. And when people traveled, they would actually stay in Christian brothers' houses. And actually, there was a group of apostles, not, not just the twelve, if you will. There were small A apostles, sent ones who were used by God to equip the church. They went from town to town to teach for a while. And these apostles would live off of the generosity or the hospitality of these Christians in the towns where they went. But there also started to become a problem during that time as well. And the problem was there were phonies out there as well who thought, this is a good cheap way for me to get around. And they would pretend to be Christian. They would pretend to be an apostle, if you will, or a prophet of God. And they would expect the church people to put them up. It became such a problem that actually there's a place where I found a set of writings from back then that they had instructions on how to deal with these types of people to find out if they were a real prophet or not. And and some of the instructions said, if they stay more than three days, they're a false prophet. Others said, when they leave, you give them a loaf of bread and that is all. If they ask for money ever, they're a false prophet. And so because of all this was going on, in the time when their brothers and sisters were in need and having physical, material needs that were needing to be met, there's also at the same time a bunch of phonies out there taking advantage of people's hospitality, and Christians started to pull away for a couple of reasons. One, they were afraid of being taken in by a phony. But also, isn't there a kind of, let's just be honest, isn't there a natural human tendency in all of us when somebody's going through a trial to kind of pull away because we don't know what to do. We feel awkward. Somebody's going through a divorce or someone's going through the loss of a loved one and we have no problem being there at the funeral. But then afterwards, we feel awkward. And we have a tendency to pull away. And so this was going on and the Hebrew writer says, keep on loving each other as brothers and all that that means. Oh, and by the way, uh, keep showing hospitality because you don't know it. Maybe you're, you would entertain an angel unaware. Can't you even see that being a little encouragement to those people like, okay, I might have a couple of phonies, but I also might have an opportunity to entertain an angel. And I'm not going to take the time because we don't have time tonight. I could show you story upon story upon story about how angels appeared as man and appeared to men. Genesis 18 where God himself showed up and two angels and they appeared as three men. And, and Abraham entertained angels. Then at a certain point he realized, ooh, this is the Lord. But there are stories all through the Bible 
I don't know if I ever shared this with you or not, but when I was in Chicago, a group of us uh, went to the Million Man March in Washington, D.C. years ago. And we decided to get a 15-passenger van. And we all jumped in it and drove from Chicago to D.C. And we were honestly flying by the seat of our pants, and we didn't even know where to stay or what to do. We couldn't find a hotel room anywhere DC, anywhere near D.C. We ended up in a hotel an hour outside of Washington, D.C., and as we got there on the night before when this was all supposed to happen, uh, we dropped all the guys off at the hotel, and the minister of music and I went and sat in the van and we prayed. We said, God, we're supposed to be in charge, and we don't even know how to find the mall at the Washington, D.C. We haven't told the guys because we've had to look like we knew what we are doing, but we don't know what we're doing, and we don't even know how to get there. Would you please help us? So when we finished praying, we realized, well, we at least need to have this van gassed up for tomorrow morning. So we saw a gas station, and so we went over to that gas station and filled up, and while we're pumping gas, this lady comes up to us and she said, are you part of those promise keeper people? And we said, yeah. She said, are you going to the thing tomorrow? We said, yeah. She said, well, my husband and I are staying at this hotel, and she pointed to the one we were at. Is there any way that he could ride with you guys in the morning? And we said, sure. Didn't want to tell him. We still didn't know where we were going. And so she said, well, his name, and honestly, it was like the most basic name, Tom Smith or whatever. And uh, um, we said, look, we'll be leaving at such a time in the morning, have a meet us in the lobby, and he can jump in the van with us when we go. So in the morning, we get up. There's this man waiting on us. And he said, hi, I'm Tom Smith. We said, hey, great. Here is our, who are our names. We jumped in the van. And we said, oh, by the way, Tom, have you ever been to D.C.? He said, oh, I go there all the time. He said, you don't, do you know where you need to go? We're like, well, you could really help us. He said, oh, this would be simple. He said, look, drive right over to here. And we got on the furthest outside extent of the subway system. Parked in an empty parking lot. We were the first ones to get on the subway as it started in toward D.C. And folks, because of how many people were coming for this, by the time we got to each stop, nobody could get on because it was already packed. We got on when it was empty. And at every stop, we had to just wave at people and just say, sorry, we're full. And we got inside, and then when we got to the downtown hub of the subway, this guy, we said, hey, where do we do from here? He goes, it's real simple. He said, you just head over to this set of escalators and head up, and you walk four blocks, and you'll run right into it. You won't be able to miss it. So as we were heading, um, uh, we were all excited. We were all heading to the mall there, and then all of a sudden I thought, hey, why don't I just invite Tom to join us and stick with our group? And I turned, and I said, Tom, would you like to come with us? He said, no, my job is done. Which was the weirdest thing. So I'm now caught between a group of my guys heading off and this guy that I'm trying to encourage. And he says, my job is done. I turn back to see to the guys where they are. And then I said, no, I'm going to talk to him again. And I turned around and, folks, he was gone. Now, was it an angel? Please hear me clearly. I don't know. If I hear one person say, Jim Johnson had an angel. I don't know. Where did you try to explain that one? Yeah, exactly. Please. Understand what he's saying here, though. That does happen. The Bible says that the angels are what? Angels of God are ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. Folks, you may not know it, but God may have many times in your life used an angel to walk through you through something that you need to be walked through. Don't try to figure it out. Just believe it and practice hospitality. What about those people who might be taking us? Let the Spirit walk you through that as well. But don't stop meeting people's needs because of it. 
Let's go on to the next verse, verse 3. Remember those in prison as if you were their fellow prisoners, and those who were mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Now, can anybody see a theme here? I mean, we're talking about showing brotherly love, which means, as we saw in the context here, if they have material needs, meet the material needs. It says, keep meeting the material needs, because you might be entertaining strangers unaware. And then he goes on and says, if they're in prison, uh, treat them as if you were their fellow prisoners. Uh, Go with me real quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Here's the theme that has been going on all along through what he's been saying here in these verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 25 and 26. I'm jumping here in verse 25 in the middle of a sentence, but it's just for the sake of time I have to. So that there may be, should be no division in the body, verse 25, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Again, we see a picture here of seeing ourselves as family, seeing ourselves as brothers and sisters in Christ, seeing ourselves as one unit that God has put together. As in any family, not everybody looks alike, not everybody acts alike. We all have different personalities and quirks and weirdness. And and you know what? Everybody's family's weird. Everybody talks about, I have a dysfunctional family. Folks, everybody's family's dysfunctional. All right? You You just have to just acknowledge that. But you know what makes you guys, you is that you're knit together through blood. Correct? And that's what knits us together is the blood of Christ. And we just need to see ourselves as a part of the family. And we've got to stop making our brothers and sisters look like us. And just accept them for who they are. And let God shape them. He's the parent, not us. But a part of this being a family is if one part suffers, we need to suffer with it because we're connected. If one part rejoices, rejoice with them because we're connected. And so if they're in prison... How can we help? I mean, if someone's in prison, how can I help them? The same way that Jonathan did to David. You say, when was David in prison? Well, he was in a type of prison. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 23. One of the most awesome stories in the Bible. I have gone back to it many times as God has been teaching me things. And in 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 14 through 18, we see a wonderful situation where David is at this point running from Saul. Saul is out to kill him. I could take days just dealing with this one story. Have you ever meditated on the fact that David at this point had been anointed the next king of Israel years before and he's still not king of Israel? And how many of us have had God give us a glimpse of what he was going to do, yet it hasn't happened yet? And here's David running for his life and he's already been anointed the next king. On top of that, have you ever thought about the fact that David is now running from the guy that he used to hang out with intimately and tightly? Remember, he used to play for Saul all the time. He, was, he just hung out with Saul and he was in his private residences and he would play for him. Who would have ever thought that years down the road, this guy that loved me so much and I played music for him would be trying to kill me? And folks, many of us, if we've lived long enough, have come to find out that people we used to be close to have turned. I could spend days on what all's going on here. But listen to what it says here in 1 Samuel 23, verses 14 through 18. It says, David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Doesn't sound comfortable, that's for sure. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. 
By the way, whether anybody can touch you or not, you've heard me say this before, haven't you? God controls whether or not they can touch you. Satan can't even tempt you without your father's permission. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. And Saul's son Jonathan went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. Don't be afraid, he said. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord. Then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish. Do you see what's going on here? David's in a tough time right now. David's hiding in the rocks and the caves and in the desert. Jonathan leaves the palace. Very comfortable. Probably didn't have AC, but as close as they had it, he had it. And he leaves that comfortable situation and he finds him. And all he could do is what? Strengthen him in God. He couldn't fix his situation. He couldn't say, look, I'll talk to my dad. I'll get it fixed. Jonathan already tried talking to his dad. What did dad do when Jonathan tried to talk to dad? Dad tried to kill Jonathan. He threw a spear at him. He, all he could do was say, my brother, hang on. Ultimately, this is going to work out for the best. Well, how can you know that, Jonathan? Well, do you remember God made a promise when He anointed you as the next king of Israel? And you're not king yet. So that means that God still is yet to fulfill His promise. You will be the next king of Israel. My dad even knows this. And I'll be second. And all he could do was come alongside of him in that time and strengthen him in God. Folks, as a part of meeting each other's brotherly needs and material, we can meet material needs. Sometimes all we can do is come alongside of each other, put our arm around each other, and say, God is still God. And you need to hang on to His promises. And I just want to come and point you back to Him. You know, if someone's lost a spouse, there's nothing you can really do, is there? Well, come alongside of them. Remember those who are in prison or suffering as if you were there with them. Sometimes we can't fix it. That was one of the biggest lessons for me as a pastor was to learn that it wasn't my job to fix it. Man, that made life a whole lot easier because I used to think it was my job to fix it. And everybody came to me and said, fix it. And sometimes I made some real executive decisions and thought I fixed it. Then they got mad because I didn't fix it the way they wanted me to fix it. I had one person on the search committee when they brought me to one of the churches and the question he asked me was, are you able to make a tough decision? We've had pastors in the past who weren't able to make a tough decision. Are you able to make the tough decision? I was like, I, I think so. I'm pretty bold at times. And later on, I had to make a tough decision and it affected their family and they left the church. But you know what? When I came to realize it's not my job to fix everything. And it's a God's job. Sometimes all I can do is come alongside of you and say, I would even love to say I understand and I know how you feel. I don't understand and I don't know how you feel. But I can point you back to God. And He'll never change. But that's verse 8. We won't get in there just yet. So let's go to the next verse. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. Now this one seems to just jump totally out of context. We've just seen show brotherly love to each other. We've just seen entertain strangers because you might be entertaining angels. We've seen take visit those or meet the needs of those in prison as if you were there. And then in verse 4 he says, marriage should be honored by all. 
and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Now, I'll be honest with you, as I was preparing and studying these passages, I came to this and I heard the brakes just lock up. What in the world is this doing here? Now, please, it's, it's good teaching. It's something we need. We see it all the way through Scripture. But I started wrestling with this and saying, okay, I've been seeing a contextual flow here, God. I don't see a contextual flow. And then, so this is what are some of the things that started to jump out at me. Maybe the author's dealing with something he's heard about his readers that he feels he needs to address. That's a possibility. Even though Paul didn't write this book, Paul did that a lot. Stick with me. Hang on. I'm going somewhere, but I see your hand. Also, due to the persecution, listen close to this part. Due to the persecution, there may be some spouses who were separated due to this imprisonment. And the temptation of the spouse left at home alone might be strong to break the marriage vows. Or even the temptation to become attractive to the spouse left home alone might also be a problem that is happening during this time. Because as you know, some were in prison. And in that separation, there might have been a temptation of some to break their marriage vows. But also, there's also a picture here of fidelity to your spouse. What has the Hebrew writer been talking about through the whole book? If you walk away from Jesus, whom you have been betrothed, and go back, it's a form of what? Infidelity Infidelity and adultery. Actually, the more you kind of meditate on it, the more you realize... No matter what, this is a necessary teaching for any age. Keep the marriage bed pure. And God's going to judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. There may have been an issue that he personally heard about that he was writing to them to deal, to deal with. It could be that he was just saying, hey, in these times when we're separated because of persecution, avoid the temptation to break your marriage vows. But it also is a picture of what he's been talking to them about the whole time. Stay faithful not only to your spouse, but that's a picture of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Stay faithful to Him. Allison. It doesn't even have to have been separation. They're living in each other's homes. They're living in each other's homes. By nature, you start to get used to people. How many times have we heard the stories of people becoming attracted to someone who stayed in their home? I don't know why he wrote it fully. But I guess gave you enough to chew on that you should be happy for a while. And if you still don't think I, I met the need... Tough. That's as far as I can go. And the Lord's going to have to take you the rest of the way. What I want to do now is I want to move into this next section and I want to take a little bit of time on it though. Look at verses 5 and 6. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid What can man do to me? Now, if we're honest, we've all quoted part of this verse, haven't we, or these verses? Though never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Haven't we quoted it? But if we're also honest, very few of us have ever quoted it in the context of money. We've quoted it in the context of once saved, always saved. We've quoted it in the context of wondering where God is. I don't sense His presence. Is He there? Oh, we never really leave you, never really forsake you. And yes, that's true. Because actually, the Hebrew writer is quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 31. Uh, I think it's around verse 4. Uh, 
Yeah, verse 6. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 is where he's quoting from. And God's made this promise. But I want you to take a look at it in the context of money. Because that's the context it was written. Let me read it to you again. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can now say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Folks, God's promise to always be there for you and always be with you is tied to the context of material needs. What was happening? Some people had lost their possessions. Others were being encouraged to share what possessions they have with them. How often have we thought to ourselves, but if I meet their need, there might not be enough for me. How many of us in these days that we're living in now of the downturn economically who have lost a lot of money that we thought we had on paper because of retirement accounts that are now gone. And how many people I know that are now having to live off their retirement accounts and they're not retired fully yet. And how often we have a tendency to look at our bank accounts shrink and think, pretty soon there won't be enough. And in that context, God says, whoa, 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 whoa. All through the Scriptures I have been teaching you not to put your confidence in money, not to put your faith in your bank account, but to put your confidence and your faith in Me because I'm the one who determines whether or not you've got money in your bank account. I'm the one that if you have nothing, you are able to meet my, I'm able to meet your need. Very interesting thing happened to me this past uh, weekend. I was teaching at that church there in Orlando. And uh, in, in a few days, Becky and I and the kids are going to take a few days over in Orlando at Disney World for a little vacation. And God has really blessed us. He really has. And uh, we're actually going to stay at the Dolphin Resort. And Lord's blessed us. We're able to stay there almost for nothing. Because of points accrued on a credit card that I didn't even know we had been accruing points until they said, you got a lot of points. When are you going to cash these in? Well, what Really? What do we do with this? My wife found Dolphin Hotel. On top of that, we had free tickets to Disney that were given to us for singing at Epcot in, in the past year. And, but as we looked at them, we were short one ticket. We'd have to buy one. Poor us. We have to buy one ticket for 10 days. I mean, for, for 10, instead of for 10, 10 uh, tickets, we only need one. While I was in Orlando... This lady got wind that we were going to be in Orlando on vacation in a few days. And she said, do you need any tickets? Well, matter of fact, we're one short. Got a phone call yesterday that there's a ticket waiting for us at the Dolphin Hotel when we check in on Thursday. And God has provided. Now, here's the part I'm getting at, though. Listen. Do you know who God used to provide us with that extra ticket so that we don't pay for any tickets now? Uh, No, it wasn't a pastor. It was a lady... In the church, a single lady who is destitute. She literally told me when I met her, if I had a quarter in my pocket, I would have a quarter. But she has a relationship with the Lord, and she trusts Him, and she meets her need. And she is so confident that God will take care of her, she's blessing us with tickets to Disney. How? She didn't even have any money. She doesn't exactly. God does. Her faith's not in her bank account. Her faith is in God. Let me take you to a couple of things that I want to kind of use to hammer this home. Go to First Timothy chapter six. I also love seeing my wife's face when I tell things that she didn't even know. 
First Timothy chapter six, verses six through ten. It says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. First Timothy chapter six, verse six. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. We, we all quote that, can't we? But how many of us really, really believe that? How many of us practice it? People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money itself, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Again, God is saying to all of us, I am your provision. I am your source. Don't look at what you have or don't have. If you have something and someone doesn't, give it to them. But Lord, if I give it to them, I might not have. You still haven't heard me, God says. I'm your provision. I'm your source. What's the difference between God having pockets full of money and He says to us, whenever you need anything, it's right here and I'll give it to you. And you having it in your bank account. What's the difference? There really is none. But for some reason, we feel better if it's in the bank account than if it's in His pocket with the promise that whenever you need it, it's yours. The bank isn't as secure. The bank bank isn't as secure. That's true. But you know what? Part of the problem is, and here's the root of it, a lot of us really wonder if God will give it to us. Oh, we know God would give it to Jim Johnson because he's a preacher. We know that God would bless these other people because he likes them. But some of us struggle with whether or not he would really do it for us. Just recently I was reading a, a biography of A.W. Tozer. and He and his wife raised six boys and then nine years after the last child they gave birth to a little girl. And even though Tozer wasn't the best father during those years... Something happened to him when that little girl was born. And all of a sudden, he melted. And he had a love for that little girl, Rebecca, that was probably on the border of inappropriate in the sense that he didn't love his other kids. He loved that girl. Even people questioned if he loved the girl more than he loved his wife. He'd go on preaching trips and he'd write letters home to his little girl and not his wife. And this same husband that when his wife would want to come on Wednesdays to the prayer meeting for missionaries with the other ladies, he would say, well, I need you to stay home with the kids. But now that the boys were older and Rebecca was home, he would offer to let her go to the prayer meeting so he could stay home with Rebecca. And he'd take her to the park and he'd hold her hand and they'd always end up at the malt shop and she'd get a chocolate malt because whatever she wanted, she got... And as I was reading the story about how Tozer melted with a love for this little girl, I have to be honest with you, I started becoming overwhelmed with my love for my kids. And I started thinking of each of them and how I love them. I love them all, but I love them differently. It's a different type of love for each kid. And I just started to weep. I literally sat there reading this book. I was by myself and I started to sob with the love that I have for my children. And then God spoke to my heart. He said, Jim, I love you more than that. God, are you saying that if I asked you, let me have a malt? And he said, and more. And I'm going to ask you, how many of you honestly really believe that God would bless you 
Oh, I know He'd do it for maybe for others, but not for me. Folks, if He demonstrated His love for you while you were His enemy by dying for you, Paul says, how much more? How much more now that we have been made right? Well, He want to demonstrate His love for us. Oh, and as a smart and loving Father, He knows what's best for us and what's not best for us. But there's a lot of stuff that we haven't even asked because we didn't think He would give it. And part of the reason why we hang on to our stuff is we, even though God's made the promise that says, I'll meet every one of your needs, I'll give you everything you need, anything you want, you just ask and I'll give it. And even though the money's in His pocket and the promise has been made to us, the reason why we don't believe it is because we wonder if He really would give it to us. And at least if it's in the bank account, we know it's there. We question His promise. Yes, ma'am? He was demonstrating to his daughter. So he was giving a demonstration to Without question. He definitely, he definitely was. You're right. He was demonstrating the love of the Father. He really was. I want to take you to a story in the Bible that I love. It's one of the most comical, yet one of the most potent stories that I hope will stick in your head if you look at it in a certain way. Go to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, verses 24 through 27. It says, After Jesus and His disciples arrived in Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax came to Peter and asked, Doesn't your teacher pay the temple tax? Yes, he does, he replied. When Peter came into the house, Jesus was the first to speak. I love this. The story tells us that this conversation erupts not from Peter starting it, but from Jesus already knowing what happened to Peter on the road. Jesus was the first to speak. What do you think, Simon, he asked? From whom do the kings of the earth collect duty and taxes? From their own sons or from others? From others, Peter answered. He said, then the sons are exempt. Jesus said to him, but so that we may not offend them, Go to the lake and throw out your line. Take the first fish you catch, open its mouth, and you'll find a four drachma coin. Take it and give it to them for my tax and yours. Now there is a lot going on here, folks. There is a lot of teaching happening right now. First of all, Peter is confronted. Does your master pay the temple tax? And Peter's like, he probably didn't know. Yeah, I'm sure he does. Yeah, he probably plays double. You know, he didn't know. And when he gets back, before he can say anything, Jesus says, uh, in his way of letting him know, I know what just happened. Let me ask you a question. Uh, Are the sons exempt, or do they have to pay taxes? And he said, well, the sons are exempt. The others have to pay taxes. He said, yeah. And in a sense, God's saying that we're exempt. As children, your tithe should not be seen as a tax. Your tithe should not be seen as a mandatory law. That God's going to be mad if you withhold. Folks, our giving, our tithes, and our offerings should be an act of worship. You'll even see back in Genesis when when, uh, Jacob meets God, he makes this promise. This is before the law. Oh, I've seen God and everything you give me now from now on, I'm going to give you a tenth. He actually didn't do it because it was a rule. He did it out of his heart. And too many of us see our tithe as a tax. A mandatory thing. Listen to me. You're exempt. 
Oh, but my prayer is that your heart would be, my Father takes care of such good care of me, I just want to worship, I want to give. But then, he says, in order so we don't offend these people, and in other words, this is a fight we could win, Jesus says, but we don't have to fight all the fights. I love how Vance Havner says it. He says, a dog can lick a skunk, but it ain't worth it. This is a fight we could, we could win, but you know what? There'll be too much damage done in the, in the meantime. So we don't offend them. I'll tell you what, go pay the tax. But he, he doesn't say, he doesn't pull out of his pocket a four drachma coin and say, hey, go pay our tax. He has Peter do it in a very interesting way. He says, go throw out your line. First fish you catch, open his mouth. In there will be a four drachma coin. Take it and go pay your tax and mine. Now, why does Jesus do it in such a ludicrous way? What's he teaching? Money's nothing for him. We, for some reason, think that if we need $50, it'll be easier for God than if we need $50,000. Money's nothing to God. Go ahead, Allison. He also provides in a way that he's always been providing for Peter. Yeah. Yeah, definitely through fish. But the, you see what is happening. God's saying, coming up with money is no problem. Folks, lock that in your head. When you're saying, I don't know how we're going to pay this next bill, your Father has promised you, never will He leave you, never will He forsake you. What does that mean? The bill will be paid. I can still remember how much our first truck payment was when Becky and I were first married. $183.61. How do we still remember that 21 years later? Because that was a big deal, that truck payment. We didn't want to miss a truck payment. And we didn't have $183.61 sometimes. And to be honest with you, our combined income, our first year of marriage, was less than $6,000. $5,558 was all we took in combined income our first year of marriage. And that bill came every month. And folks, let me tell you, sometimes even comically, the amount we scraped up was $183.61. But somehow, someway, miraculously, it would be provided. And I thank God for that $183.61 truck payment because it has stuck in my head. He will meet our need. He will meet our need. So when God says, never will I ever need you, never will I forsake you, it is tied to your money. And then what does he end it with? So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Oh, we can fret about Congress making more taxes and all this kind of stuff. And we can have an opinion on it. And I hope you're involved in the political process and voting for people that you believe are seeking God and getting wisdom from Him. But guess what, folks? I don't care if all the rules go against us. You're going to be able to pay your bills. You're going to be able to eat. You're going to be able to be taken care of because money is nothing for God. And don't love money. Be content with what you have. Because God's promised that He'll take care of you. Hey, as I travel around now and travel as a traveling speaker, a lot of other evangelists, I'm not an evangelist, but I live the life of one, come up and they say, things are real tough right now. I bet you're having it pretty tough too. And I'm like, no, actually, my schedule's pretty full. Well, what are you doing? I'm resting in the fact that the God who asked me to do this is the one who's going to provide for me, and so I'm not marketing. I have no brochure. I have no handout. I don't call and say, would you let me come speak? I believe that the one who said he would do it will do it. 
and he's been faithful, and he'll never leave me, and I don't know how he's doing it. Can anybody tell me how the five loaves and two fish multiplied? Has anybody ever thought about that? Have you ever sat up there and thought, how did it multiply? Did it multiply as they passed it? Did it multiply in the basket? Did it multiply when he prayed over it? You notice how the Scripture never tells us how it happened. It just simply said, they passed it around, and over 5,000 plus people ate, and there was 12 basketfuls left over. It never tells you how. And I can tell you right now, I don't know how God's doing it. But He does. Yeah, Philip wondered. He did the math. Eight months' wages won't be enough to give everyone a bite. Now you have in uh, eight minutes got to finish two verses. So if you'll listen faster, look at verse seven. It says, "Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith." Now I want to clarify something for you that I didn't realize until I actually studied this a little bit more. This is not talking about the the spiritual leaders that were alive at that time that they had. Look at verse uh, um, 17. In verse 17 it says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you. And we'll get to that one next week. Verse 24, he says, Greet all your leaders and all God's people. And we'll deal with that next week. But here, those leaders are alive. The ones he tells them to obey and to greet. But if you look in the context here of verse 7, these leaders that are being spoken of aren't alive. Listen to how it, I can prove it to you. All right, It says, remember them. Not obey them. Remember them. It then says, who spoke the word of God to you. Past tense. Not the ones who were speaking the word of God to you, but the ones who did. He also says, consider the outcome of their life. Right now, the outcome of my life is not, not done. But when he tells them to look at the outcome of their life, their life must have already finished. They must have already passed from this life to the next. He says, imitate their faith. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, Paul says, anything you've seen me do, put it into practice. But he was alive at the time. So these leaders that he's talking about are leaders who have already gone before them. The ones who came and taught them the Scriptures. Remember Hebrews chapter 2? I won't take the time to turn there. But in Hebrews chapter 2, one of the reasons we know that Paul didn't write the book of Hebrews is because the Hebrew writer says that we are the ones who heard it from those who heard from the Lord face to face and they passed it on to us. Well, Paul had heard from the Lord face to face. He hadn't had it passed on to some, from somebody else. Therefore... It was speaking of somebody else besides Paul. But the Hebrew writers referring, remember those who first taught you the gospel. Remember their way of life. Imitate their life. Remember the outcome of their life. And what's interesting, then he goes in in verse 8 and says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I don't know if you caught this or not, but verses 7 and 8 are a microcosm of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12. Remember chapter 11 was the hall of fame of men and women of faith and to imitate their life and to remember their faith and look at what they've done. And then the beginning of chapter 12 says what? Since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's keep an eye on what they've done and let's fix our eyes on who? Jesus. He's actually summing up chapter 11 and 12 here. And he says, remember your leaders. Remember what they went through to bring you the gospel. Remember how they stuck with it in faith. Oh, and let me remind you. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, things in your life may change, and they most likely will. But Jesus never, ever will change, folks. Jesus' promises never will change. In Matthew 24, verse 35, what does it say? 
not one word will pass away. Everything He said will hold true to the end because His Word is Him. And also He showed us in Revelation chapter 22, and I want to wrap up with this, Revelation chapter 22 verse 13. Look at how Jesus describes Himself here at the end of the book. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. In other words, Jesus says, I was here before the world was even made. I was the one who made the world. I'm the one who died for the world. I'm the one who rose from the dead by my own power and am controlling the world. And when all is said and done and this earth that we see is destroyed, I'm going to still be here. Now I've got to be honest with you, as things in this life change, I get left behind. I've got to be honest. When I, I'm pretty smart. I thought I was pretty smart anyway. I was president of the National Honor Society and I, I did pretty well in school. My kids are learning stuff that I never learned. They know stuff that I can't even fathom. Stuff that I was studying in college, they're studying in high school now. And I have to acknowledge, things are passing me up. And I've had to learn these words. I don't know. I'm lost. But now, as Becky and I homeschool, and Becky does most of the homeschooling, Becky's wise enough to say, Hey, Nicole, I'll put you teach your brother and sister this one. Because Nicole knows stuff Becky doesn't know. This happened this week. But you know what, folks? Nothing's passing Jesus by. We have a tendency in this age of increased knowledge to think that we're going to get smarter than God. Uh-oh. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And next week, I want to deal with that as the start of where we pick up next week. I want to show you that the same way that Jesus dealt with individuals when He met with them one-on-one on the earth is how Jesus deals with each of us today. That's how we're going to start next week. Alright, if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, I'm going to show you a pattern that Jesus followed. And when He dealt with individuals one-on-one on on the earth, I can show you that since He does not change, He follows that same pattern with each one of us. And it will be an encouragement to you. So for tonight, let's just take a stop and say, look to Him. Look to Jesus. Don't look at the waves. He's more powerful than the storm. And you're His child. Father, Again, we thank You for the privilege of being able to open Your Word and to allow You to speak to us. And we have covered a myriad of topics. And it sure does seem at times, as we look at this section, that the Hebrew writer was just kind of throwing, oh, and also this, and and don't forget that. And And I need to say this, but Lord, at the same time, we see that there was a connection. And it was all tied to the fact that He understood what was going on in their lives. And the reason was, You were inspiring Him to write. And you know everything that's going on in all of our lives. And you know what's happening right now. Lord, you know who in this room has material possessions and who in this room does not. Who has needs and who does not. And Lord, I just pray that you will orchestrate how we come together to get to know each other and to love each other and to meet each other's needs. And Lord, and those who in this room think they don't have anything to give but have a lot to receive... May they understand how much you have to give through them as well in ways they might not understand. And so, Father, may we not see ourselves as a group of givers and receivers, but may we see ourselves as brothers and sisters wanting to give toward each other. And may we trust you to be the supplier of all that we need individually, not man. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.